Welcome back to another episode of the Corporate Pilot Guys podcast. This is the first episode of the year. Rob, how are you doing? Really good. Happy New Year to you, Tim. Happy New Year to you. I spent part of my new year not at home. Uh, Right before the holidays, on Christmas Eve, actually, I got a text that I had to go fly. And not on Christmas Day, thankfully. That's the only day we are where I work. That's the only day we're guaranteed off. But I got a text on the 24th. Somebody was sick. I was leaving the morning of the 26th on a seven-day trip. And I was not super excited. My wife was not super excited. Um, (laughs) My children could have cared less. (laughs) They didn't care. They did, but you you wouldn't have known. So I was in California for a week, uh, two different locations. Uh, one of the locations was Palm Springs, where you go a lot. I do. And I think we you went there just after I did. I think we missed each other by two days. That's right. And I got home late on, I think it was on New Year's Day, late on the 1st, I got home. So that's why we missed an episode last time because we were going to record and then I got put on that trip and there was just there was no way possible to do it and that's just one more example that shows how crazy a corporate pilot's uh, schedule can be and especially for you and I trying to get together to do these if it's not me with a crazy schedule it's you with the crazy random schedule sometimes it neither of us have that other times it's one or the other, or it's both of us. That's right. I mean, it's, we've talked about our schedules before, and I, I mean, I do feel blessed that in the company that I work that I actually have a schedule. I've worked for companies where, you know, you're literally, you're going for 15 days and you had absolutely no notice and that kind of thing. So, and my, my, mine's a bit different. I had from the 22nd to the 26th off, and then I was flying on the 27th. And we did a flight from Western Canada to uh, Maui, and we landed in Maui. And it was extremely busy, Tim. It was there was so many tra- so much traffic in Maui. It was really hard to get in. I what should day say was that the tw- it was on the twenty seventh. Okay, and those two days, the twenty sixth and the twenty seventh, are absolutely crazy busy every single year, no matter where you go. Like everybody has Christmas at home, and then they fly somewhere. Yes. In the corporate world, that's exactly what happens. We tend to fly to Boeing Field and that was a zoo, absolute zoo. And then we got some other issues where we were almost an hour and a half late leaving there. So then we started our oceanic leg um, and that was six hours and change. And uh, we landed in Maui, found out that we could not stay in Maui because there literally was no more parking room. So we had to um, bid farewell to our to our nice passengers and pack the airplane up, get it all ready to go uh, for a flight to Kona. And we landed in Kona. Um, really cool place to land, Tim. It's, it's like basically landing on a volcanic airfield. It's like black, um, old, like an old lava field basically that you're landing on. And um, really neat. There's like hundreds and hundreds of people at the end of the runway watching this land, which was a little weird. Yeah. And uh, lot, lots of fun. Um, the, the, the non-fun part was me jumping on an airliner the next day um, at 11.30 p.m. and then flying all night back to uh, back home. So 
anyways, just a, a bit of a different thing. Um, normally we leave the aircraft um, at a location and then we airline out if it's going to be there for a long time. Yeah. And we, we do the same. It just, it varies, but lately the demand for the airplanes has been higher. So the option to leave the airplane and fly the crew home has gone away. Well, we're, we will fly the airplane home because somebody else needs it. And that's known ahead of time. Fast forwarding to more current flights. I mm-hmm. did go to Chicago here last night, which I've been in and out of there multiple times. It's used to be the busiest airport in the United States. Now I believe it's the second busiest in the United States next to Atlanta Hartsfield uh, being the busiest, but it's still busy. It depends on when you go. There's sometimes you go in and out of there. It's a piece of cake. Other times, like last night, it was very busy. It's the busiest I've seen it. I mean, everywhere you looked um, in any direction while taxiing out, you look out, there's 10 or 15 airplanes in every single direction, no matter where you look. Like, wow. you could look to your left, there's 10 or 15 airplanes. Look to the right, there's 10 or 15 more. That's wild. Half of them are moving. <laughs> That's nighttime, lights flashing and stuff. It, it's cool. I mean, it's a lot of airplanes. I haven't but, had the O'Hare experience. I've done Midway, but I've never yeah. done O'Hare. Uh, Midway's super easy. O'Hare is just, Long taxi. I've had times where I've landed on the southernmost runway and had to taxi up to the uh, FBO, which is Signature. Mm. That is a long taxi. I've had over 30-minute taxis there. Oh, wow. Um, one time went into LAX. Um, you can have long taxi times there. I've had 30 to 40-minute taxi times um, at both places. Yeah, I've done LAX a number of times, and I've thankfully been blessed. I never got the uh, the weird taxi, but um, they actually kept it going real, real good. And then we would taxied from the north side all the way to the south side. And it was actually, I mean, it's nerve wracking because, you, you know, you don't do that all the time. And it's definitely busy. It's one of those things you go into it. You, you're a little bit nervous, mm-hmm. but after you come out of it, it's not bad. And that's my experience every time. And it's not that you're nervous. You're not nervous. But you don't want to make a mistake. You want exactly. to get your calls correct the first time. That's right. Things are a little bit different. You go to a smaller controlled airport like Teterboro, Teterboro or something, mm-hmm. they'll vector you onto the um, approach maybe five to seven miles outside the final approach fix. Here, you're 30 miles outside the final approach fix and you're lined up. You're on final 30 miles out. Wow. So it's it's much different in that respect, but it's it's not difficult The I've said this before, the large class Bravo airports, those those controllers are the best of the best and it's very streamlined and the pilots are all professional and good on the radio. It's not like you've got a new pilot going in there messing up radio calls. They're all professionals going in and out of there and that that helps. It's not bad overall looking at it. You get in and out of there and it's, it's easy. And the cool thing about Chicago here Mm-hmm. Most large airports, the departure procedures, you've got 10 or 15 departure procedures. Right. Guess how many they have at O'Hare? Oh, I have no idea. One. Really? One departure procedure, and it's just a, it's a, it's a uh, vector. Wow. So you take off, there's two uh, distances with altitude. You got to be above those altitudes by those distances. But it's just, it's super easy. It's the, I, think, I believe it's just the O'Hare 8. And then obviously that number will change, but yeah, it's just one, uh, departure procedure. But one thing we do want to get into is a few of the differences between 
the United States and Canada. I'm in the United States, obviously you're in Canada, and we do have a lot of differences. We have the FAA. Who do you have? Transport Canada. Transport Canada. And the FAA is government. Uh, Transport Canada is privatized, correct? No, um, you're thinking NAV Canada. Oh, I am. Transport Canada. Yeah, so Transport Canada is the regulator, and NAV Canada is basically the the operator of our airports in Canada, which is okay. yes, you are right. They are they're a private non not for profit company. So yeah, there are definitely differences. Mm-hmm. But one thing, like talking about how I went to O'Hare airspace differences, that is a class Bravo airspace. So the biggest, busiest airspace in the United States are class Bravo. In Canada, you can have a busy airport like Toronto, mm-hmm. which is not class Bravo. Looks very similar, but what? What is Toronto? Class Charlie. Class Charlie. And for here, that's smaller towered airports. So Toronto is a class Charlie airspace, but you do have class Bravo airspace. What are what are some of the differences between class Bravo and Canada? Where is it used versus the United States? Yeah. So class B airspace in Canada is controlled airspace between 12,000, technically 12,501 feet. Um at or above the MEA, up to 17,999 feet, technically. And so it, if you're operating in that area, you need to be controlled. So it's controlled airspace. So if, it, if it's VFR or it is um, IFR, 250, no, 250 knots below 10,000 feet. And here's the other kicker, probably a difference between the United States and Canada is 200 knots below 3,000 feet AGL within 10 nautical miles of a controlled airport. We have something similar to that. So here, Class Charlie and Class Delta airports from the surface up to 2,500 feet AGL within four nautical miles, yet we slowed to 200. But inside a Class B or Class Bravo airport like O'Hare, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and 200 knots indicated airspeed, below the lateral limits of the Class Bravo airspace. Right. It doesn't matter if you're four miles from it or 15, if there's Class B above you and you're not in within the, the vertical limits of that airspace, you've got to be 200 knots or less below that airspace. Yeah, and I, I, I think that people don't really realize that you know airliners and our type of aircraft are actually slowed way down inside of those busy airspaces and we're not hauling in at 250 knots like, you know, a lot of times we're when we're doing an approach, we're at 300 knots at least. So we we do you know mock decimal eight zero typically until we transition them to an indicate airspeed of 300 knots, and then just before we reach uh, 10,000 feet, we're slowed to 250, and uh, our, even our our aircraft lets us know if we're not. It it'll yes. it'll let us know. It'll say decelerate, decelerate. And keep flashing, and then the other crew members like, "Hey, man, <laughs> slow down." Uh, but 250 knots below 10, but then we have that little bit different. The 200 knots below 3,000 feet AGL within 10 nautical miles of an airport, which is you know very different than your Class B airspace. And you know, there's so much controlling going on inside Class B airspace in the United mm-hmm. States. Aircraft need to be slowed down, and usually even. The- the, the speed limit restriction in Canada, the below 3,000 feet and 10 nautical miles, mm-hmm. and even the one we have, 
we're usually well within that speed um, by 10 nautical miles because if we're doing an approach, we're not doing over 200 knots or even close to 250 when we're getting set up for the approach. But usually by 10 miles from the airport, more than that, I would say probably 15 to 20, somewhere in there, we're starting to get slowed down anyway to get set up for the approach and getting slowed down to probably 180 to 200 knots anyway or or less. Definitely. In a lot of approaches now in Canada, like a T instrument approach, a GPS approach, you got restrictions of like 210 knots kind of thing. Anyways, that's that's the rule. Class B in Canada, basically, again, uh, I gave the dimensions there. It's air traffic control. You have to have a clearance. You have to have a transponder. You have to have a radio, obviously. And separations provided to all aircraft. We talked a little bit before we even started recording this. There is an an absolute insane amount of differences between the United States and Canada. That's why when you fly to another country, you're supposed to look all this stuff up, be familiar with the other country's rules, not your own country's, because they won't even they won't even apply. I still got to know the other country's rules. But one thing, talking about flying into an airport, doing an instrument approach. Mm-hmm. What if we're going into an airport that does not have an instrument approach? We're going to be entering a traffic pattern. And here in the United States, the VFR traffic pattern, or it's what you guys call a circuit, right? We normally fly them if you're flying a 172, a thousand feet AGL, or if you're in a heavy aircraft over 12.5 or turbine powered aircraft, you're going to be at a 1500 foot pattern altitude. Mm-hmm. Another thing we do in the United States, enter the traffic pattern on a 45 degree entry onto the downwind leg, or you can do a midfield crosswind. But in Canada, there are some differences to that, especially entering on a 45 for the downwind. You guys do not do that, correct? That's right. We have a very British way of doing things. I believe that's kind of where it all came from. And there's a really incredible poster, which we'll link into. Actually, I'm going to put two posters in there. One is VFR circuit procedures at uncontrolled aerodromes. So we have the typical downwind base and final like everybody else. Um, if we're taking off doing a, a downwind base and final, um, you know, you typically take off, reach 500 feet, turn left, and then enter the downwind at 1,000 feet, and then you're going to do your base leg and final. So if you're an aircraft that's coming in from the what we call the downwind side, you cannot just enter into the downwind willy-nilly. You you either have to be, uh, certainly can't enter on a 45. Um, you could enter straight in on the downwind if there wasn't anybody in front of you. But typically what happens is, is that aircraft have to fly over top of the circuit at 500 feet above that circuit altitude. So if we're, if we're talking about coming in for a landing at, an airport, you'd be crossing your center field, and then you would be descending on the upwind side or the dead side, getting down to that pattern altitude, crossing back over the center field, and then joining your downwind. And that's just how we do it here. We have a CTAF or common traffic advisory frequency that we would announce intentions on. And even mm-hmm. if we're talking ATC going into an uncontrolled airport, they'll tell us change to advisory frequency approved, squawk VFR if you're canceling. Right. And you would just switch over and talk to that CTAF frequency. That's different in Canada also, correct? It is, but it's not 
N- not all airports are the same. So some aircraft airports are going to have an, an basically an ATF frequency, so a common frequency. Um, you know, you're going to talk in, in the uncontrolled airport environment, just like you would in the United States. And then we add something in called an MF, a mandatory frequency. Typically, you're going to have a um, a flight service station um, at that airport. And so they're going to be providing you uh, landing information. They're going to give you the weather. They're going to give you um, the traffic of this in the area and provide you with advisories throughout. Now, the deal is that you have to report everything that you're doing. So you, you have to report all of the things. So if you address them basically as whatever XYZ radio, um, you're going to call them. If you're on the ground, you're going to, you know, you have to advise them that you're entering the maneuvering area. So prior to taxi, you can't just go. Um, prior to entering uh, the runway, you have to, to advise them uh, a downwind call a final call. And so those are all mandatory things. You have to give, um, I, th- I believe it's a five minute warning prior to entering the zone, we call it, and then give um, a rival procedure, what you're going to be doing uh, once you land and calling clear of the runway. And that's kind of in a nutshell, but the airport traffic frequency would be the equivalent of a CTAF here. But when you have the MF or the mandatory frequency, there's a human that you're going to be talking to that's not technically a an air traffic controller that you would have at a Toronto or Vancouver or other large airport. Right. I mean, they're typically going to be uh, an employee of NAV Canada and they are going to be, um, they're not, I mean, they probably have very similar to air traffic control training, but they are not technically a controller. Um, they're a flight service specialist. And they're going to be providing you with all those things that I mentioned to you. And, you know, it's their job to give you a heads up of where all the traffic is and and all of that stuff and coordinate everything that's going on, which can, can be pretty challenging. Um, the, the other, I guess, if depending on your IFR, VFR, there's many other frequencies that you need to monitor. And the, the key one is 126.7 in Canada, which is a very, very busy frequency. So whether if you're IFR or VFR, if you're en route in Canada and you're going from one airport to another, you would typically, you know, clear the area, uh, report that you're clear of the area, and then switch over 26.7. If you're an IFR aircraft coming inbound, you're going to want to listen to 126.7 and find out what's going on at that airport that you're going to arrive at. And in Canada, we have a whole idea of so if you're going to be doing an approach into an uncontrolled aerodrome in Canada, there's a whole set of rules that you have to follow. And essentially, um, your five minutes prior to the estimated time of your, your approach, you have to tell everybody what you're going to do. So you're going to tell them, you know, whatever procedure you're going to be doing. Then we have to um, report when we're passing the, the, uh, um, the fix with the intention of conducting a procedure turn. And then we have to do a call for the final approach and the final approach inbound. And then there's other little rules. And then after you land, you have to call clear the runway. In other words, there's a whole bunch of talking and you got to do this on multiple frequencies. So typically 
Um, you're going to let everybody know what you're doing on 26.7, and then you're going to switch over to possibly a mandatory frequency or some type of other frequency at an airport and let everybody know again what you're doing, and that it keeps everybody in the know. Yeah, and or monitor two frequencies. Yes. One other thing I want to hit on real quick, and we didn't talk about this. In the United States, if you file a flight plan and then decide not to fly and do nothing, well, a few hours later or a couple hours later, it, that flight plan will just drop out of the system. Right. What about up in Canada? Can you do that? And what if you if you do that, what will happen? If you file an IFR flight plan and then don't go fly, what happens? You're going to have an activation of um, a whole bunch of, well, you're going to get a lot of attention. Let's put it that yes. way, Tim. <laughs> and that's what I'm getting at. Yes. Because here you can do it and get away with it. Nothing happens. It just kicks out. But if you've got a flight plane that's filed off at 18Z in Canada and then you decide at 17.55, oh, we're not going to go or we're going to delay for three hours. What would happen as soon as 18Z hits and you don't do anything? The whole search and rescue operations are going to begin. It'll begin with a phone call to whatever you left in your flight plan. That's the first thing that they're going to do. They can't reach you. Your flight plan basically is going to activate at the time you were scheduled to depart, correct? That's right. Okay. And then, so if you have a one hour long flight, are they going to look for you 30 minutes past your estimated time of arrival? Yes. So they would probably start with calling your departure point. Did they leave here? If they, exactly. if they know the airplane's out on the ramp, it's right there. Well, probably the conversation's over. Have you had any experiences with that or know of anybody that's done that? Do they, if they send a search and rescue or anything, do they, or even make a phone call, do they send the person a bill? Um, no, they don't send a bill typically, but I have had a situation. I was in a King Air. I was landing in the Northern airport and uh, we shut down, did all the things, sorry, before we shut down, before clearing the... After we cleared the runway, uh, we were given a frequency to call, or it would be in a phone number, one of the two. So we'd either get on a cell phone or the frequency. And there's special relaying stations that happen in the north. So it sounds like an old like dial-up uh, computer internet um, thing where it you can hear it dialing in the background, and then it reaches another agency and then you you call down and clear and then they close your flight plan well somehow that didn't relay properly so they ended up calling the airport manager the airport manager showed up at my hotel oh yes. and uh because it was kind of like a one hotel town right yeah they knew they knew where the flight the the, the crew was so they tracked me down and said hey man didn't you close your flight plan and absolutely i did but um that's how serious things are taken with air traffic control um there's options for that, and I, I don't think it's a great option, but you could close your flight plan and keep your um, your search and rescue side of things open, or yeah, sometimes- Separate things there. I do remember that from yes. Canada Operations. You close your flight plan, but you also have to cancel search and rescue. That's right. You could keep, so you could keep an IFR flight, or you could close your flight plan, but the search and rescue side is still open. Um, so the flight following side of it's kind of still open. And then that keeps you, every, you know, if you had an incident on the approach and you landed and maybe, you know, whatever the situation is, someone's going to come and get you in a snowbank, basically, um, which is an important thing. <laughs> yes. 
It's minus 44 here today. So uh, that's a really, really important thing um, to, you know, that, to know that somebody's coming. But yes, you're exactly right. There's two functions of flight plan. And if, if you fail to, to close your flight plan, um, the flight planning, the flight search and rescue side is going to be already be activated and it could lead into pretty major things. Um, in my area, I mean, you could have uh, search and rescue come all the way from Winnipeg, Manitoba, and that's a long, long ways in a C-130. It is a I, very long way. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to send you a bill or not, but let's hope not because that's going to be very, very expensive. So you got to remember whether you're IFR or VFR, specifically flying in an uncontrolled aerodrome, uh, that you uh, you need to make sure that your flight plan's closed both sides of it, for sure. Um, if you land um, IFR at an airport in Canada, your flight plan is immediately closed for you. You don't need to do anything. If you land at an uncontrolled airport, obviously it's not, and then you have to do it. Probably yeah, similar it, to you. Yeah, it's the same. If you land at a controlled airport, as soon as you touch down, ATC closes or cancels your IFR flight plan. Uncontrolled, you can cancel it in the air um, or you cancel it on the ground, but you've got to either call on a frequency or over the telephone. Some operations you you can't cancel in the air. You have to do it on the ground. So then you got to pick up a phone and cancel. And that's right. another thing you don't want to do is forget to cancel because if you're at an uncontrolled airport and you're still on an active IFR flight plane, even though you're on the ground, airplanes behind you can't do approaches until you cancel. Exactly. So those have like a hold. So you got to make sure you cancel. And I've been on the back end of that. I've been that guy that couldn't do an approach because the guy in front of us didn't cancel simply because they forgot. I, one question I have, in Canada, we have a flight plan or a flight itinerary. So if you don't text, like if you're not going to go more than 25 miles from your, your origin, you don't need a flight plan. Were you going to ask if you, ha do you have to file a flight plan here? Yeah. No. Uh, VFR, you can file a flight plan. That's really for search and rescue, so they know when you're going, where you're going, altitude, stuff like that. IFR, obviously, yes, but VFR, you could take off and fly all the way across the country without being on a on a without filing a flight plan. And then, even though you file it, you it's not activated. You've got to call flight service, and you have to open your VFR flight plan. When you get there to your destination, you have to call up and and close it. Otherwise, they'll come looking for you. And I've had that happen with students to go on cross countries. One guy came back. He did not close his VFR flight plan. Mm -hmm. He went home. A deputy sheriff walked into the flight school dispatch room <laughs> looking for an airplane. And I said, oh, it's out here. He forgot to close his flight plan. Oh, no. Again. It was the oh, second no. time. Yeah. Oh, no. I, th I think you did, you did mention 30 minutes. And technically speaking in Canada is that you're not overdue until you hit 60 minutes past your last reported estimated time of arrival. Moral of the story, don't forget to close your flight plan. There's radical differences between Canada and the United States when it comes to rules and regulations in aviation. Um, is, our training is, is very different. We have just so many different things. And, and in Canada, um, you know, en route operations in Canada, everybody announces their intentions and locations on 26-7 and monitors 21.5 and in the US 
everybody just monitors 21.5. There's just, there's just so many different things that we do different that we don't really even think about. But just remember, as a pilot in command of an aircraft, if you're flying to a different country, you're responsible to know what those rules are. And that's why I think it's so important that people, you know, that are going even to somewhere like Mexico or something like that, which has completely different rules for certain things, you know, um, that you know what those differences are because you're ultimately going to be held responsible for them. Yeah, exactly. And it's not something you can just look up the night before. No, 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 definitely not. Want to thank everybody for joining us today. I know there's uh, a, a lot of, um, you know, things that we talked about today. Just a reminder that there's so much more to learn about. Aviation is a constant learning experience for myself and Tim. We are not necessarily in the books all the time, but we are definitely exposed to the rules and regulations. And just even preparing for today's lesson, lesson, to the, today's uh, discussion, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of prep here today. And uh, most importantly, we want to wish everybody a happy new year and uh, have a, an amazing 2024 from Rob and Tim. Take care, everyone.